welcome to the Macro Fab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Brandon Satram. And we are your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 151. Brandon Satram is the developer advocate for Particle, an IoT platform company. Brandon is also the founder of Carrot Pants Press, a company dedicated to educating makers. On episode number 122, Brandon discussed the particle photon and built an IoT breathalyzer with Parker live on the podcast. Brandon loves to talk about code, open source, microcontrollers, robots, and whatever new shiny tool or technology that is currently distracting him. So Brandon, what is currently distracting you now? Mesh network NeoPixels. I have spent way, way too much time messing with I mean, we've all done stuff with uh, WS2812s over over the years and whatnot, and they're fun devices. But as I have uh, have done more lately with Particle's new third generation devices and mesh network, I've spent a ton of time messing with NeoPixel illustrations and animations as a way to to experiment with network latency and, and things like that, which has been a lot of fun. So it's the day job, but that's also been the thing that's been super distracting for me right now. So it's been it's been fun. Well, blinking LEDs are always distracting. Absolutely. I could just stare at them. You have the best kind of distraction because the distraction is what you get paid for. Well, that's very true. Yeah, you're right. That's right. (laughs) You can't beat it. Can you, like, update your, like, company profile to say, like, blinking engineer or something like that? I should do that. You should. Absolutely should do that. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like, yeah, that sounds LinkedIn-ish. And and it and it's and it's it's, <laughs> it's very domain specific too. So if anybody else is like, "Hey, can you work on this thing?" I'll be like, "I'm sorry, if that doesn't involve blinky lights, it's out of my job description." So I can't do it. <laughs> sorry, I have to pass. Yeah, um, like bling bling president of bling, president bling. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that definitely does sound like a LinkedIn job title <laughs> for sure. So, uh, Brandon, why? Mesh networking. Why does why does this matter? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I I know Parker when we when we talked before um, early on the podcast, we we had a bit of a conversation about the IoT and sort of the bad reputation that it has. And it's worth reiterating again that I think a lot of the the reputation that the Internet of Things has in in much of the industry is it's for a couple of different reasons, but one of them is the fact that people tend to just put Wi-Fi radios or cellular radios in every single device and call it good, right? Smart home vendors, industrial um, organizations. I mean, it tends to be a very common thing. It's the cheapest, it's the easiest way to create a IoT device by putting a Wi-Fi radio in it and calling it good. Yeah, because everyone's got a Wi-Fi modem at their house now. Right, right, absolutely. Um, The problem with this is that Wi-Fi networks are inherently brittle, right? When a Wi-Fi network goes down, every device on the network loses its ability, loses its IP address, and it loses its ability to communicate with other devices on the network. And so if you're doing a serious installation uh, where you need reliability, a lot of companies will tend to turn to something more like cellular. But the problem with cellular is that radios tend to be quite a bit more expensive, almost twice as much in many cases. And so it can be harder to do to create a network installation at scale. And you're not moving away from that problem of still having every single device connected to the internet. And every device with a public IP is an attack vector. Uh, it's an opportunity for another soldier in the next botnet army. Uh, and so, you know, mesh networking is an interesting thing to me and it's an interesting thing to Particle because I think it it signifies where 
the space where the connected hardware space is, is maturing. And rather than putting a Wi-Fi or cellular radio on every single device, we're trying to be a little bit more nuanced and create networks of devices where a select few devices have that connection to the open internet, or maybe none do at all, but that there's an ability for a, a local network of devices to coexist and, can com and who can communicate with one another without having to expose every single node or every single endpoint uh, to the open internet. And I think that that's fundamentally more secure because obviously not every device in that case is uniquely addressable, um, but it also ends up being cheaper in many cases because the devices don't have to have that Wi-Fi or cellular radio in order to be a part of the network. And it's not just dollar wise, it's probably also power cheaper as well. Is you have you have less power uh need for high powered radios and stuff to go talk to the base station. Yeah, yeah, big time. I mean when you start talking about depending on the on the, the mesh radio that you're using, but when those sorts of cases you're talking about devices that can now be powered off of coin cell batteries or can sleep for longer periods of time, uh, and you can get you can get a lot more out of them um than just running. Uh, running off of mains power. So Particle wasn't the first to do mesh networking. Uh, so why why is Particle moving into the space now? I, so I think a big thing, you know, Particle, and, you know, full disclosure, I was a Particle customer three-ish years or so before I joined the company earlier this year. And I think I came to Particle the way that a lot of, uh, a lot of developers uh, and IoT builders tend to, and it's because... It was, you know, inexpensive, accessible hardware. I mean, when I first started working um, with devices like this, your your options for getting a maker device online was buying a $35 Arduino Uno and then a $65 Wi-Fi shield that would bolt on top of it. And so, you know, in the early days, moving to Particle was a $30 investment instead of a $90 investment. And uh, that was sort of the, the cheaper option. And over the years, this Particle has added cellular and now mesh it's really been in response to where customers um where customers are, are going and, and what they're asking for in many cases but it's also in recognizing that we want to make each of those connectivity options as as easy as possible and so um you know particle prides itself on having made wi-fi really easy and accessible for makers and for prototypers and it's the same thing with cellular as well uh, and then it's the same thing with mesh, right? If you look at a lot of the mesh networking standards out there, you're sort of left to your own devices when it comes to setting up gateways and defining roles in the network and determining what your communication mechanism between nodes is going to be. You're on your own with figuring out how to backhaul data uh, to the cloud if that's something that you're looking to do or to handle secure uh, security between devices and the process for provisioning new devices on the network and things like that. There's a laundry list of things that you have to do to roll your own mesh network using some of these other standards. And so what we wanted to do is actually create something that was developer friendly, just as easy as Wi-Fi or cellular. You can get one or two devices out of the box and you can immediately have a mesh network that already has networking provisioned at the device OS level. The ability to do all of those things that I just said are actually just come sort of for free uh, as a part of using that hardware in and of itself. Yeah, so what kind of technology is the mesh network for particle using then? So the big thing, there, there's a few pieces. The the actual, uh, the hardware that we're using is a Nordic uh, NRF52840, um, one of the thread certified radios. And there's a couple out there. D-Link has one, NXP has one, Silicon Labs has their their Mighty Gecko, uh, which is another interesting uh, interesting one as well. But you know, we chose to use the Nordic 
um, because they, you know, Nordic has actually done some pretty amazing stuff in the context of both um, thread, but also Wi-Fi and cellular with radios that can be sort of multi-purpose. You have a thread radio that can also sort of coexist with Wi-Fi or coexist with uh, with cellular as well. And so, the chip that's underlying uh, all of our all of our mesh-based or third-generation devices is a NRF52840. And those devices give you the ability to implement sort of the open the open thread stack. Um, and you know, we oh, can, so that's what you mean by a thread radio is. Yeah, yeah. So I jumped ahead of myself a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I had I was trying to recall I'll recall what that what that meant. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, in the context of mesh networking, sort of the the older uh, or the, the existing standards are your your Z waves and your Zigbees. Um, and then LoRa could be sort of lumped into that group as well because it, it does provide some interesting connectivity options at larger distances. Uh, but Zigbee and Zoo have definitely been around for a lot longer. Thread is an interesting case because it was actually created by uh, by the Nest team at Google. And the whole reason that they went down this path was actually uh, is an interesting use case and part of why Particle decided to choose an open thread-based radio and why I love a lot of other vendors have as well because when nest moved from thermostats to smoke detectors they were moving from higher powered like mains power devices into battery power devices and smoke detectors and they didn't want to use wi-fi because wi-fi was too power hungry uh, and also wi-fi is brittle right if the network goes down and your smoke detectors can't alert for a fire that's a big problem um, so they couldn't use wi-fi they looked at bluetooth but bluetooth is point to point and they needed to be able to multicast messages across the network so that multiple smoke detectors could receive could receive a message. So so that led Nest down this down this path of creating this AO2154 based standard um, called Thread that they then released uh, as an open source library called OpenThread. They created a working group around this, Particle's part of it, uh, NXP, Scilabs, TDK, Nordic, D-Link. There's a ton of companies that are part of this working group as well that's really designed to evolve this standard to where not only can it work well with uh, devices from a single vendor, but work between vendors and even start to work with other uh, other standards. So there's actually some work happening in that working group now to allow Zigbee, because it's also an open standard, to allow Zigbee and Thread uh, radio, uh, devices to talk uh, to one another on the same network as well, which is pretty interesting. And this is fascinating to me because from a, from a smart home context, one of the big challenges I've always had with Wi-Fi is it's given a lot of vendors this excuse to try to lock you into their ecosystem, whether it's lock you into a protocol to lock you to lock you in, into a protocol or to have to use their app or to, you know, the, the echo sort of broke this in a couple of ways because they created this convergence of devices that wanted to be featured uh, on their platform. But you still have this radio level difference to where devices are communicating across the open internet just to do something two feet away in the same room. Uh, <laughs> and, and so Thread and Zigbee and these other standards make it really interesting where you can actually start to have this interoperability across vendors and across standards, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that, that's been my biggest, uh, I guess, hindrance in adopting like any kind of home automation stuff is the whole, I don't want to be locked in, you know, forever on one thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, same, same here. And I even like a couple of years ago, I kind of tried to roll, roll my own sort of thing where I was running, um, I was running a, a Raspberry Pi and a and a Samsung Arctic Ten as sort of my own, uh, my own sort of home automation hub. And I was doing some stuff with with Node Red actually running 
uh, running on that hub to, to, you know, facilitate communication between devices. But what I ran into was those cases where vendors only allowed me to communicate via their API. And then that, that was just a cloud-based, it's just a cloud-based communication. So I'm back, back to where I started. There's no, I don't really have a local network. I'm just proxying things through the internet, which is annoying. So yeah, same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you want to be able to open the door <laughs> when, uh, you get home and your internet's out or the power's out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this is why a lot of consumers in the smart home space have been really reticent as well. Like we'll never have outside of outside of hobbyists and people that are just really hardcore about this stuff. Um, we'll never have general acceptance of these kinds of technologies as long as those constraints exist. Yeah, I think it will it basically for home automation to really take off. It's got to be just like a how a normal light switch or socket works now is you can go to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy something off the shelf and you wire it in and it just and it just works with your what existing network that you have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, also whatever happens in home automation needs to be protected from the servers going down or the company going out of business or the API just not working for whatever reason. So there's a there's a little side tangent on that one, Stephen. I don't know if you saw the article where this uh, one person bought for his. This is a really sad story, I guess. Uh, bought a one of those like life alert things. Oh yeah, for I heard his about this. Uh, I saw gr- his grandmother. Yeah, and apparently that company went out of business, and the device couldn't report anymore back up to you know the mothership, and they found her, you know. I guess passed in her apartment or wherever and it was within her reach or something like that. So they don't know if was able to use the device or something like that. Oh, that's awful. And she got no zero notification whatsoever that it was no longer operable. Yeah. Yeah. Like the company went out of business and no one was notified of, of this. So this is again, like because Wi-Fi tends to be the cheapest, most expedient option. um, I think a lot of vendors do this and then, they don't think about the long term or they'll do sort of seditious things like use DRM uh, on the firmware in their devices and, you know, DMCA takedowns to prevent security researchers and even individual hackers from being able to monitor devices. There was the uh, Google had acquired one of these smart home hubs that went um, went offline. And then as soon as they took they turn all the servers off, the device becomes completely non-functional. Um, and that's a consumer case. It's not life and death, but that's this is a great example. I mean, there's lots of these kinds of things where, by relying on Wi-Fi connections to the open internet, um, we're we're asking for these sorts of cases where companies go out of business and we as consumers can't take control uh, of how the devices function, even on our own, even on our own home networks. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about something a little bit more uh, happy. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been working on a, a mesh networking project. Brian. I have. Yeah, I have. So the project in, and this is sort of foreshadowed this a little bit earlier, but you know, in the context of mesh networking, one of the things that's fascinating to me is not only do you care about sort of the range of devices and your ability to communicate between devices on the local network, but also the speed at which you can communicate. I've been thinking a lot about latency. And, um, you know, when I talked earlier about Particle wanting to make it really easy for developers to implement mesh networks, a big part of it is actually hardware things that just work. But another piece of it is APIs that make it really easy for devices to communicate. So one of the APIs that 
that Particle has provided with the new hardware is Mesh is PubSub in a Mesh network. So you can do publish and subscribe of messages. And under the covers, it's just UDP, UDP multicast messaging. So super fast, very low latency. And I wanted to test for myself exactly how low latency uh, could it be. And so uh, the idea that I had to, to do that was to create a mesh network of, uh, of NeoPixel strips that are wrapped around a bunch of tiny little 12-inch Christmas trees that I got from Amazon. So I got three of these trees. I got three NeoPixel strips. Uh, and I used the... Um, I used the the party badge that I created for for Spectra for our conference in October, um, which is you know I, I spent just like many of us is I spent a good bit of my year entrenched in the badge life world, uh, and so we had created a <laughs> a badge that has sort of a built-in piezo buzzer, and since that was already there, I just loaded it up. There's a UI for selecting songs on the uh, on the device, so I just loaded up some Christmas songs. And then anytime a note was playing, a tone or no tone call was playing against the piezo, I was firing off, a, I'd fire off a mesh.publish um, to the devices on the network. And then, um, and that device was just a, a mesh only device. So I guess we haven't covered this yet, but in the context of, of particle um, devices, there's, there's three types of devices. There's the Argon, which is a Wi-Fi device, the Boron, which is a cellular LTE CADM1 device, and then the xenon and the xenons are the mesh only devices they're the the workhorse devices they're the cheaper devices that can run as end nodes off of coin cell batteries and whatnot and so i have an argon that sort of is the gateway but the badge and then the actual christmas trees with the neopixel strips are all powered by xenons and the three xenons are just listening for they're just they just have a mesh subscribe call that's that's uh, passing off a handler that will then light up the neopixel strip uh, and what I found, you know, when I, I went into this not knowing how it was going to look, I was a little worried that it was going to seem laggy, that it would, there, it would just sort of a touch off, but it actually has worked out really great. It's been almost instantaneous to see, uh, to actually see the, the, the pixels all on, the, the strips actually all light up uh, almost as instantly as I'm hitting the button, which is pretty fascinating. That's cool. Out of out of curiosity, have you uh, gone down to I don't know eat with a scope or something and actually measured the time? I have not. Uh, that is a that is a break. That is a a project for my Christmas break to actually see, yeah, to actually do those measurements to see because I mean it's a I, I'm I'm quite confident that it is a a naked eye effect. Like it looks to me to be synchronized when in fact there probably is a very of course, there's a very minuscule delay, but I'd be really interested to know exactly how far it is. And I also haven't really done anything yet where I just have the trees kind of closely grouped together. Because, um, I, I, you know, I wrote a blog post about this last week, and so it was really more about seeing if it could work. I would like to actually test the edges of it now to sort of move the trees apart, sort of see what happens. Yeah, it'd be really cool if you yeah, put it in like a long hallway and see if the messages like, I mean, it's it's they, they what? The electromagnetic waves go at close to the speed of light, so uh, are you going to be able to measure something like that? I don't know in your in your home lab. Yeah, probably not. It's not that sophisticated. But I mean that that idea of the hallway, like there's some interesting things you could do with that same demo to mess to to mess with sort of the unique features of a mesh network. And and one of these is that when when a device sort of sits in a certain place on the network between two other devices, it also can function as a repeater. 
So it has the ability to take a message that comes to its node, respond to it, but then also pass it along if it sees that there's another node that may be out of range of the main device. And so, whereas right now I have the badge sort of multicast, sort of broadcasting to all three, if I were to spread them out outside of the range where they were part of that, where they had that connection to the main device, it would actually bounce the messages one to the other. So if I did that correctly, you'd get sort of a, you know, bounce, you get the delayed effect as well, which would be, which could be kind of interesting. Yeah, that would be the more interesting thing, I think, to, to measure. Yeah, because then you're also, you're also doing a bit of a range test, um, which we've had, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We've actually had some folks in our community that have done some pretty, some pretty interesting things with range testing. You can run these devices with an antenna or without, um, but with the antennas, if you have both sort of your gateway and your end device with an antenna, um, in a business setting, there's some people that are seeing 50 meters uh, between mm. devices. This is in places that have concrete floors, you know, metal framing, things like that, busy That's Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh, in a home setting, they're seeing something more like 100 meters. And, uh, and one guy actually the other day did a line of sight test where he actually was able to get 500 meters between devices. It, this is out in the open with no other ambient RF around, but 500, 500 meters on lines of, line of sight is pretty interesting. And that's battery powered, right? Yeah, it's battery powered. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. That's all. That is all due credit to the to the Nordic, the Nordic semiconductor crew, and uh, and just Open Thread <laughs> itself. But it's pretty cool. Pretty cool to see that. Yeah. The um, I wonder if I don't know if you ever looked into the called um, is it called Cantinas. Uh, where they take a, a like a Pringles can or a Folgers coffee can, and then they have a, you put your Wi-Fi antenna in it, and it kind of like makes a directional antenna, oh, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, like a tra- like a transmission beam. Yeah, oh, what's, cool. what yeah. are those called? I I don't um, remember what they're called. I've seen that before. Yeah, because like, the tubes are they have like a metal coating or something like that in it. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't remember what they're called. That's pretty cool, though. That would that would certainly it's can something that would make your your mesh network look pretty pro at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The first link I found is uh, how to build a tin can waveguide Wi-Fi antenna, and he has a, uh, a a can of beef stew that he eats to turn it into this thing. I think I have to make this. Yeah, I think you need to like see how far you can push it. I, I saw a guy build a uh, he he built a. Um, a device that w- that was basically one of those cans that w- was a was an antenna, and it was on a rotary table with a like an XY gantry, and he would turn and scan the horizon with this, and basically make a heat map so you could see Wi-Fi signals with this with this device, and it w- it would take hours to scan the environment, but then he could reproduce a map of it, uh, a heat map so of Wi-Fi. Cool. It was really cool. Oh wow. It's even a simpler name. It's can and antenna combined, so it's cantenna. Cantenna. Go figure. All right, that's cool. Go figure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, along those lines, I have actually been really fascinated with, you know, latency is sort of the first the first thing I've been messing with, sort of testing APIs that we have, but signal strength and being able to, to almost triangulate device location without having, you know, GPS coordinates or anything like that, but to be able to create sort of a topology map of a network based on signal strength or based on where messages are, are coming from and things like that is something that I'd like to spend more time playing with. We don't have a lot of stuff documented around that right now because I think a lot of it is just 
you know, customers and developers playing with it and seeing the things that they can that they can come up with. But it'd be, it would be really neat to create sort of this virtual map of devices based on what you're seeing in, in behavior and activity. That's actually uh, one of the uh, questions someone asked in our Slack channel. Oh, cool. So if we're you done with your, your project or is there something else like the future of your project? Well, so the future of it, I have, I have to share because I, I went on, there's a few things that happened as a result of all of this. Um, messing with, uh, you know, messing with lighting up the trees based on button presses or based on music that was coming from from the devices. I went down this path of, um, and this may be an area where Stephen can educate me a little bit more, but I went down this path of, of could you represent uh, could I create sort of a color of sound algorithm where a note that comes across via the device gets mapped to a uh, gets mapped to a color uh, as well? And so you so you get sort of a uniform uh, based on the notes that are coming across from the badge. You get more of a uniform color as opposed to random, which is what I was doing uh, at first when I was prototyping. And um, you know, recognizing obviously that that uh, you know. Sound is based on air molecules and compression waves, and light is based on electromagnetic waves. That there's, there's definitely a difference there, and even though, the, but they do still both share this concept of frequency. And so I started doing uh, a bunch of research on what this looked like. Again, all just I went down this whole rabbit hole of like, oh, this is interesting. I can light up things, but could I actually make more of a pattern to it that could be, quote unquote, pleasing to the eye? And I, I went down this this path of realizing there's a lot of folks that have actually done some research on sound and color um, people have done. There was actually a scientist that, who created a, a mapping between discrete pitches and colors um, because he had a condition called um, synesthesia, which is um, okay. a condition when you experience one sound is, or one sense is a different sense and he perceived sound as color. And so he ba he basically created this thing called the, the scribing correspondence. Um, where, or, or sort of the keyboard with lights, where he basically took the sounds that he was hearing and then mapped them to a color on the spectrum, which is, uh, which is pretty crazy stuff. And so, I started, you know, researching this, and I found some people that actually created some JavaScript and Python code to do a mapping of wavelengths to RGB values, uh, and I just created a C-based version of it uh, on my own as well. And, and the long and the short of it is that if you assume that the note A occurs at about 440 hertz and you double it about 40 times, you end up getting something into the range of light that we can see. So you get sort of a red, orange, yellow, green, blue uh, colors at that point. And so like, right, like an F sharp uh, four is dark red, uh, A four is orange, uh, C sharp five is lime, et cetera. It's all, it's arbitrary to a certain extent, but it's really interesting because it creates this sort of consistent mapping as well, but it also has this other side effect of now what I was doing on the actual devices through the processor was I was adding computation. It wasn't just receiving a message and then lighting up the NeoPixels, but now I had a computation step where I was taking this frequency and I was basically doubling it 40 times and then mapping it to a wavelength and then interpreting the RGB values. And it still ended up being very like right on. I mean, I was getting, you know, getting the animations to pop up all, you know, as quickly as I could push the button from what I could see. So you were you were doing the computation on the mesh side, and so you were sending a frequency to them now yeah. instead of just on off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that okay. was yeah, yeah. So I was basically redoing the calculation across all three end nodes, and that was more of a just to see what happened. Yeah, the more 
the, the you know the, the saner thing to do would have been to do the calculation actually on the, the sender side and then send it out that way. But that was really, yeah, it was a bit of a test to sort of see what would happen on the end devices when I added that extra computation between receiving the publish, receiving the message, the UDP message, and then actually lighting up the pixels, which is kind of cool. So, and again, I don't know if I will ever be done with this project because every time I finish something, I come up with another idea, but uh, Adafruit actually just sent out their latest uh, Ada boxes uh, this month, and that actually included the, um, a, a cool, a cool new device that they've created called the Adafruit Neo Trellis, which is a basically it's a SAMD 51 based board that has a bunch of NeoPixels built in, um, and the kit comes with some some nice, I don't, what do you call those, little moldy little uh, soft buttons that you can press. Um, and so what I what I was the other thing I was messing with here is because that's a different microprocessor. Um, using serial communication with a mesh-based device to then join it to the mesh network. So I was sort of meshifying a non-mesh device by just doing serial uh, and then sending serial commands of the buttons that are pressed and then lighting up the trees that way. So just different different areas of sort of poking at the edges of this entire project and seeing what happens with it. I probably need to do more to write up, you know, write up the entire thing because it's uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun to work with. So that's sort of the next piece. And I have that, I actually did get that demo piece with the trellis working earlier today. Uh, so where there's a correspondence when you when you put it in sort of basic MIDI mode or key press mode that you'll press one of the buttons and it actually will use a um, sort of an Adafruit um, wheel animation. And I'm sending this, I'm sending that same wheel position via serial over to the Xenon and the Xenon is doing a mesh publish to um, to the other to the other devices and they're seeing that wheel position and then lighting up the entire strip with that color. Cool. Yeah. And you have to show it off after the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, I will definitely. It's all working, and I'm just, <laughs> I, and I. There's no way. It, there's absolutely no way that it won't work. Of course, after the podcast is done, right? Because <laughs> I, I would totally say we would do it now, but like this is a audio only podcast. And yeah. I don't think. I don't think shifting light frequency down to audio range like the backwards way is going to work. Yeah, it too probably well doesn't work, speakers. right? Oh, that'd be pretty fascinating. <laughs> I will. I will post a video of it tomorrow morning, and if you want, you can put it in the show notes or something. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah, well, maybe I'm missing something here. I'm. A, I guess I'm a little bit confused, but the whole <laughs> shift of uh, color down to audio or the other way around uh, that just seems like it's a lookup table effectively. It seems like there's not much of a calculation there. Like it's sort of like everything's already done for you. Right. It is. And, and I actually started, that's a great question. I actually started with that place of, I'll just do the lookup table across the notes that I know that I'm sending. Cause, cause of course the notes are actually all mapped in arrays on the badge side. And so, you know, those frequencies are coming from the same, coming from a place where I could very easily just add a second array or additional values that, that map to the actual RGB colors. Uh, and so I, that's, again, that's probably the saner way to do it. This was another exercise in over-engineering, which I, I guess I get to do because no one, because <laughs> none of this stuff goes to production. So I get to, I get to over-engineer it all I want. But yeah, that's definitely a case where that'd be the saner alternative. Uh, but I but I love your solution. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is one of those cases where I couldn't stop myself. Like I'm like, 
yeah, I'll, I'll just go ahead and do the lookup table. That's fine. And then when I went down this research and I found a site where a guy had actually created a calculator where you could enter a fundamental note and a pitch standard and a bias and and the, the environmental temperature and humidity. And he would use all of that to give you a color of light resonant with that pitch. And I'm like, oh, OK, I have to replicate this. <laughs> that was that was ultimately what did it. You know, I, one of the things is I, I see I see these devices being for, for some reason, this just keeps coming to mind. But entertainment purposes on a on a stage seems like these would be absolutely phenomenal for light controlling or for something that needs to be assembled or disassembled on a regular basis uh, and then, you know, reconfigured on the fly kind of thing. It seems to me like if you had some kind of fancy uh, stage lighting setup that you could you're, you're talking network. about replacing uh dmx well actually maybe not even replacing it maybe maybe you could have it communicate over dmx but 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 i'm talking about like the actual physical construction of it you can have this whole setup with uh, i'm i'm using quotes here no wires you know oh yeah well i think there's a lot of cases when when you start sort of spreading your devices out uh, there's a lot of cases where solutions can have have those sorts of qualities, whether it's an entertainment case or whether it's a uh, sort of a large environment like a, a sporting event or something like that. Or even uh, we have a, a you know a customer based out east or a potential customer that's prototyping right now, and they're looking at um, using their devices in sporting events and trying to figure out that problem of how you beat the fact that most stadiums or any place with a ton of people has terrible wi-fi terrible cellular it's impossible to communicate reliably where you're actually trying to create something that's a little bit more resilient uh, and so it'll be interesting to see if they're able to pull something like that off because it could be a cool a cool alternative but yeah any environment where you've got a lot of rf got huge interference or you've got a ton of people or even where you're actually dealing with quick breakdown spin up sort of cases uh it could definitely be a cool case for that so that's a good segue into the first question. Nice. <laughs> and uh, I think most of these are from Jarrett from the Slack. Cool. And so the first question is, could you have a sports game of a sort and hand out each, like, I guess in a device to a spectator where it has a little LCD or LED on, with a mesh chip? And so you have, like, he says 10,000. <laughs> I mean, the stadium that I go to has, like, 100,000 people that go to it. Uh, so I'm going to say 100,000 100, systems attempting to figure out where they're at in the stadium, connecting to base stations. And then he's he's thinking about making a ginormous like display a la like the I'm, I'm thinking like the People's Republic of North Korea, People's uh. Republic, North People's Republic in quotes um, when they have like the giant like um, people screens where they flip the cards around and they like dance with the cards. Yeah, if you yeah. haven't seen those videos, they're actually pretty impressive. Like the coordination between like a thousand people. Um, you, you know, you know what's actually coming to mind is a really, really lazy wave where you don't have to stand up. It just oh, goes yeah. around in a circle. <laughs> there you go. You just yeah. hold up, hold up your little device and the wave goes and the wave just goes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I think those are, that's, Absolutely. I mean, those are interesting sorts of use cases. And I, I, I love, first of all, I love the whole receiving color information and turning the audience to a huge display because that's what I've been playing with right now with this idea of sort of showing the power of communication via color, via display. Um, you absolutely could. I mean, this is the thing that, that people are, are prototyping with right now. The, the challenge that you have to figure out is, 
I mean, network design is everything in this case. And I think this is definitely an area where as more and more people start to create real solutions with mesh networking, I think the state of the art around network design is going to evolve in terms of what sort of recommendations people make based on how far apart to place nodes or how to deal with repeaters and gateways and things like that. Um, it's the kind of thing that, that I would say, yeah, absolutely, you could do something like that. The, the devil is in the details of how you actually configure that network and how you set everything up and where you place gateways and, and things like that. But no, you just, you just have all 100,000 of them be repeaters, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, if you have 10,000 of these systems, how do you like power them? So that's one of the areas where, where mesh actually shines in the case of, of a, lot more, a lot more devices at scale because you can actually start to talk about powering for longer periods of time via conventional means, via batteries, or, but also moving into smaller power form factors like a coin cell battery. Um, you know, sleepy devices of these kinds tend to run more at the microamp level when they're not really doing that much. And so you can actually shut these things down, um, respond at intervals. You can run over, over longer periods of time without having to worry uh, about burning through uh, battery life too quickly. Because uh, Jarrett's got the question where he's got a indoor garden that he's doing logging metrics. Jarrett, we're not going to ask what you're growing in your indoor garden, <laughs> but he's got a bunch of devices that he's logging, like the temperature and I guess like light levels and maybe and even soil uh, humidity soil or moisture, moisture or something yeah. like that mm -hmm. um, but so right now he's got a whole bunch of like he says a million in quotes phone chargers plugging everything together so i imagine like this ginormous like spaghetti mess of like like plant vines but like cell phone lines like intertwined right it will look like that show um what like where like humans are dead and so it's like the nature's like overgrowing cities and stuff <laughs> that's what i'm imagining here Except is like Nature's it's like been overtaken by, by USB micro cables. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you, you mean it. You mean it looks like developing anything on a Raspberry Pi. Right? <laughs> uh, yes, basically, <laughs> <laughs> just a massive cables. Yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of cases where I, I'm guessing those metrics are happening at a pretty, uh, you know, pretty infrequent intervals. Um, it's probably not something he needs to do every ten seconds or thirty seconds, every several minutes, maybe. But you could definitely in that case, power something off of a single double A or couple double A's or even a coin cell and run a project over the course of several days or weeks without having to change out your power. Now you do still have to change out power. So he says indoor gardens. So I don't know exactly what this would look like, but those low power draws make it a lot easier to turn to something like solar and have to work without having to worry too much about um, whether you're getting enough current draw through the panels. Uh, as well. That's what I was so, about to say. Yeah, is yeah. like a, a solar kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what I would do. I mean, I've messed with solar. I, you know, I've, I've done a bit with solar before, and I'm no pro here, but it's always been a challenge when I'm running, when I would run previously off of like uh, you know five volt microcontrollers or something like that. But having something that's actually got a much lower uh, power draw would be a whole lot easier to mess with. I also see if if the timing's not super critical, I could see a, a circuit that just basically monitors how much charge has built up from the solar power and when it has enough it then fires up sends off a message and then redoes re the cycle oh yeah I, I i can imagine that being like like you have to have like some margin of error in that so like it fires it off but doesn't have enough power to go back into like its sleep monitoring mode and so then it just 
you know, it's suicided to give out its last information that it ever knew about. Yeah, the last message it just sends out, goodbye world. (laughs) Yeah, that's always been my problem with um, doing doing stuff like like wireless, uh, because I used to run some like wireless like security cameras, and it's like, well, you still got to run power to them, so they're not truly wireless. Yeah. Yeah. but the thing with mesh networking, I think, is it's the low power having batteries, which is where it makes it shine. Uh, I guess exploring more into solar would probably be the best bet for something that's like you don't have to worry about. Yeah. A lot of the I mean, our, our particles third gen devices all have um, all have LiPo ports built on. So you can also go through that case of sort of using a small LiPo as your backup or sort of have 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 solar charge the LiPo and use the LiPo. Uh, and then sort of monitor how things are, how you know the draw throughout throughout the day, things like that. Yeah. Or Jarrett, you could develop a bio cell that grows and somehow turns the soil into energy directly. And then I think a solar cell is probably way easier though. <laughs> and then sell the idea to Dave Jones because he loves that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, he loves that kind of stuff. <laughs> Actually, I think it was Dave Jones that was talking about a. It was a cell phone charge system, like a wireless cell phone charger that used lasers, what? like infrared lasers. And so it would be, so you'd go to like your coffee shop, right? And they would have a hub that would be in the center of the whole room. And it would, I guess it would figure out where your cell phone would be at and it would beam energy into a port on it. Uh. Like it would beam infrared energy and charge your phone up because you would have like a I guess you'd have like a case on it that that had a sensor that could see that. I thought it was a pretty cool idea. It but sounds cool. It sounds cool, but also sounds dangerous. Yeah. Well, he proved that like at levels that it wouldn't be dangerous. You could, you wouldn't be able to charge your phone. But that's kind of a cool idea. Like it, instead, of, like <laughs> if you had this like big indoor area, and you could just track where stuff's at and, and up up tie with like computer vision and then just beam energy like microwaves down at like the robots. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> that's yeah, that's really cool. But I could see a situation where you're like sitting at a table reading a book and then for some reason you just start feeling really hot and it just starts getting hotter and hotter. <laughs> <laughs> you just like you like look over at your coffee and your coffee starts boiling. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I'm thinking like more of like a warehouse, like an industrial setting where you have a bunch of robots and, you know, when a robot needs to charge, it's on downtime. So instead of that, you just beam microwave energy into it from, you know, the ceiling. That's cool. (laughs) Out of a Pringles can, right? Out of a Pringles can. can. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's crazy. Uh, um, And so one last question. Cool. uh, Brandon is an update on carrot. Pants Press. So when you were on episode 122, you had a new Kickstarter coming out and a new book. So yeah, let's have an update. Yeah. So if, the, if it's good. Yeah, it is. Yes, it is good. The kick. Yeah, I know. I figured you wouldn't have asked if it wasn't right. I would hope. Uh, no. Yes. Yeah, so the Kickstarter went, went well. Uh, we yeah, we did launch the Kickstarter for the second book. Um, and I'll, I'll get a little bit of background. I mean, what, what Care Pants Press primarily does is our goal is to expose kids to the world of electronics through story. Uh, and so we 
create uh, illustrated children's books that are designed to sort of teach basic electronics concepts. Um, the first book was called Ed Gets His Power Back, was about a green LED named Ed, figured out how to light up his LED um, in the town of Red Bordeaux. Um, <laughs> and the, the second book, uh, the second book is called Ellie Saves the Day. It was about Ellie, a blue LED. Uh, and the circuit here got a little bit more complicated, but this was actually, she was with her friend Ed working at a, uh, at a railroad crossing and needed to figure out how to blink her and Ed's LEDs back and forth with the help of a 555 timer chip uh, before a train came barreling down the track. And uh, so for that second book, um, what we hit, what we did the first book as well, and what a lot of a lot of our, our backers really enjoyed was having sort of the book with a breadboard and components to actually build the circuit from the book. We created sort of this 50-page PDF guidebook that you could walk along, you know, walk walk through uh, kids between the ages of you know four upwards of 10 or 11 to actually walk through the components and explain what they do and sort of build it step by step. We did a, for the second book, actually introduced sort of a custom PCB. So started to introduce the world of, of printed circuit boards and having components that are, um, and what I actually did in this case for this, for this individual kit for backers is we had the PCB made, but instead of actually soldering components into the PCB, um, I soldered in sockets and headers for every single component. And so what kids will do when they go through this for the second book is actually insert the components and then they can swap out different resistors and different capacitors to see how that changes sort of the blink rate and the, and the, the time that an individual light goes on or off. And uh, it's been an interesting thing. So we actually just, the, the Kickstarter was successful. We promised that we would get the books to everybody by December, by mid-December. It is mid-December and we have shipped everything, um, which is, yeah, which is pretty fantastic. So. I can, I can. A Kickstarter that keeps their promises. Exactly. I can claim to be a two-time Kickstarter that had two on-time, on-time projects delivered, uh, which is, uh, which is pretty fun. Uh, and so we got the books out, and uh, people are just starting to get their hands on them. But you know, one of the things that I really love about this is that kids seem to really um, love the idea of of getting a sort of an engaging tale. I mean, it's a story first. Uh, but they're almost learning learning things by accident. You could put it put it in one way, but they're really sort of learning what these components are and what they do. And I've seen this in my kids and in others as well, as they can instantly recognize what these what these components are and how they work. And it really gets them excited about actually being able to create things with electronics and explore further. Oh, cool! So, Brandon, yeah. where can people find out more about Carrot Pants Press, Particle, uh, your mesh? Christmas trees, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so for for particle, you can find out uh, you, if you go to blog.particle.io. So that actually has the mesh Christmas tree project out there. Um, I will on my Twitter account at Brandon Satram uh, post a video of the Neo Trellis demo and some of those other things, uh, other things tomorrow. And then Carrot Pants, we're actually on Twitter as uh, at Carrot Pants Pub. Uh, or carrotpaintstudios.com, which is our website. We're actually in the process. We're going to put the new books up for sale on our other site tomorrow. After I got all the Kickstarter books out, I had that three or four days where I didn't want to ever see another shipping label or box ever again in my entire life. And I've gotten past that, and now I'm we're putting the books up online so that other folks can get them. And so that'll actually be the day this podcast comes out. Yeah, I was about to say tomorrow would be. When you're listening, oh, okay. to this, all you right, can, yes. You so, can actually, go see it. Go there right now if you're listening to this. 
Got it. <laughs> buy, buy, buy. <laughs> That's right. Help me get close to break even on this Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, Brandon, you want to sign us out? Yeah. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Brandon Satram. And we were your hosts, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig. See you later, guys. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or mesh networking idea, let Stephen and I and Brandon know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer with no O's, or at Analog ENG, or at Brandon Satrum, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. Brandon is uh, a member of our Slack channel and uh, hangs out there as long with uh, Stephen and I. And if you're not subscribed to that podcast yet, click that subscribe button. We also have a new podcast email like newsletter, so go check that out. Uh, you can subscribe to that on macfab.com slash blog slash podcast. And please review us wherever you listen. It helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.